Hello and welcome to Look Familiar, the show that remembers that late 80s BBC One afternoon daytime quiz show Foursquare had four randomly assigned gremlin squares on each pair of the pair board. They didn't look much like gremlins, they looked more sort of like angry dot wavy faces on a green background, a bit like that Bon Jovi album but not. I don't know what I'm talking about now so I'd better say I'm Tim Worthington and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that nobody else ever seems to is Only Connect champion and Q I elf Lydia Myerson. Lydia, what are you up to? Where can we find it? I am mostly trying to stay off social media and failing. So I am at Lydia Myzen, L-Y-D-I-A-M-I-Z-O-N on Twitter and also on Blue Sky. Um, otherwise, just trying to just trying to survive. <laughs> that sounds fair enough. Well, probably you could do with some of your first choice as part of that plan. Let's just say this clip I'm playing in won't make much sense when you can only hear it. Okay, yes, that is Spice Up Your Life by the Spice Girls with loads of sort of crashing and banging over it. So, Lydia, why all the commotion? This is the special edition Spice Girls Impulse Body Spray that I purchased about 10 cans of during whatever tiny period of time it was that it was on sale. And in 2017, purchased from eBay an empty can for £30 because I love it so much. Impulse body spray generally, I would happily lead a national campaign to bring back all the impulse from the 90s. And a group of women between the ages of 35 and 40, I'm sure would be right behind me. And nobody else would care. It's honestly one of the most, I have got the can in front of me, it is one of the most evocative smells of my childhood. It's Proustian. If I smell that, I am 12 and I am desperately trying to think of a creative band name so that me and my sister can be the next big thing because I think that's what we thought was all it would take. Well, what's interesting is, I mean, I was pondering earlier, were the Spice Girls the last example of a band that you could literally dress yourself as in head to toe? Because after that, it became a bit more sort of, you know, bland and well-presented and all about being well-dressed and not standing out. Even S Club 7, they were kind of a sort of direct Frankenstein descendant of the Spice Girls, more or less. They didn't really have much... You couldn't get S Club 7 trainers. No. I think the Spice Girls were the last example of that. So you could make yourself smell like them, which is quite you a could. thing. I mean, All Saints, I think, had their own sort of aesthetic, but the Spice Girls were cartoon characters, weren't they? You could dress as each individual one. My sister and I frequently did. We had a whole dance routine for her birthday where we dressed up as the Spice Girls and did the dance routine. There isn't really, I don't think of a single example of a band with so much merchandise, with so much branding, with so much, I mean, we were sold to quite cynically, but I mean, I can't bring myself to be angry because I loved it so much and I still do. But I mean, we had the body spray, which was sort of very sweet. It's quite vanilla-y. There was definitely a sort of like a sticker collection but photographs you could go to the news agent and hand over two pounds and they'd give you some photographs as if they were really obviously they were mass production like mass produced you could sort of put them in a weird photo album of the spice girls and there was 
Spice Girls chocolate and Spice Girls mobile phone stuff and Spice there was just Spice Girls everything you could probably live your life completely on Spice Girls branded merchandise Spice Girls Pepsi I think yeah you could survive because yes, you could send off a generation next the single if you collected enough Pepsi ring pull yeah we did we did do that one of the better Spice Girls songs it really is oh my goodness yeah just as a sort of between the ages of what was Spice Girls like 95 through 99 I guess so it's between the ages of 9 and 12 for me and slightly younger for my sister we were just sucked in completely by the Spice Girls and then the sort of follow-ons that came after them all saves Cleopatra I mean the boys as well like five and stuff this very poppy cheesy world and I think there was a bit of me as well that still thought I was quite edgy and cool but I mean looking back I wasn't I was just I was totally sold my husband my now husband took me in whenever it was 2017 2018 to the Spice Girls retrospective exhibition in London and it was one of the greatest things you could see that all their albums the first pressings you could see the Union Jack dress that Jerry wore to the Brits you could see all of it was honestly like my own sort of personal time capsule and at the end you could go in the bus that was in the Spice World movie and that was very exciting I'm still a massive Spice Girls stan even now well I'm going to say I think they deserve I mean it's not like they're disrespected in retrospect but I don't think people appreciate now just what a phenomenon they were because they were absolutely unavoidably huge you're looking at me at the time was you know a little bit older and more interested in what Supergrass and Super Fairy Animals were doing but they were everywhere I liked them I thought their songs were a cut above average for not a cut above they were miles above average for that kind of outfit but also i mean there was all the merchandise and it was quite you know cynically targeted in some ways and there were things like i've always been bleakly fascinated by you mentioned you could get spice girls mobile phone stuff do you know about the toy spice girls mobile phone i can't remember it it bothers me in two ways the first is that it has 12 phrases now, which two of them got extra phrases and the others didn't? I am a bit concerned about that. And the other thing is, you know that some bad danger somewhere now has hacked it and put their own messages on with... <laughs> I don't want to know what they it were Victoria saying to them. Then. Oh, yes, it was. But that's the important thing is there was a message behind it all. And that message might not have weathered well since then, you know, but we were in a different world then. They were at least trying to do something positive. I mean, yes. even the famous... Margaret Thatcher was the first Spice Girl. I don't think they realised the reaction that would get and that it would upset people, but I think they were actually, they meant well with that. As bizarre a phrase as that might be to hear me saying, I think they said it. I'm not going to say in all innocence because I think they knew what they were trying to say, but... It sort of came out wrong. I mean, I'm willing to give them a path. Derry Halliwell's now married to Christian Horner, who's, you know, extremely wealthy. And so who knows what their politics might be. But I mean, if you be totally honest, I'm not interested in what they're... If they all came out as massive Reform UK supporters tomorrow, that would hurt. But as long as they're keeping quiet about their politics, I want to leave them completely untainted in my head. They were really important to me. Like you said, their music was amazing. I remember where I was the first time I saw the wannabe video. I was standing in my kitchen and I saw it on top of the pops. Something in my head went, this is important. <laughs> this is an important thing that you need to be watching. And this is your life now. And it became my life. And, you know, I think you're right. Their music is amazing. It's still really good. I still listen to it. I will fight anybody who says that it's not good because I think it holds up really well. 
well. Even their worst songs are still better than a lot of the stuff that was coming out around that time. I would have loved to have pretended I was into Supergrass at that time, but that didn't come until a few years later when I got a CD player. But it was really, it was, you know, I don't think it's a controversial, it was a seismic moment for music. And they, as characters, have, you know, if you say to anybody, if you say to a 10-year-old girl now, Ginger Spice, they probably know what you're talking about. And, you know, they've really endured. Well, I was going to say, I would say a measure of people always point to, you know, as a measure of how big they were, either Spice World, the film, and, you know, it did break enormous amounts of records, and it was actually really good as well. That's the thing people never mention. Or the huge concerts that they did. But I will point to the fact that they had Coronation Street animated ad bumpers. That is big. God, that is like sparking a neuron in my head of memory of like, this happened and you watched it. I do have a list here of all the, I was going to say flavours, scents, I suppose, of the body sprays. Do you want to know what they all were? They had more than one body spray? Yeah, there was an individual one for each Spice Girl. Which one have I got then? Mine doesn't say. Just says the Spice Girls, official Spice Girls body spray. No, go on, what were they? According to the original advert, Mel C was tangerine. Oh, I think that's just the individual flavours that went into the body spray. Oh, right. Okay. So we've also got lavender and vanilla for Emma, African paddock water musk for Mel B, warm amber and red pepper for Jerry, and jasmine and lily of the valley for Victoria. Now, I'm going to say there, Victoria was supposed to be, you know, now and with it and glam, the budget conscious supermodel you could all aspire to be. Lily of the Valley was a nonsense. It's always been a nonsense. It's absolutely always been a nonsense. I don't understand. But I mean, I think they were probably clutching at straws by the time they got to They were just like, oh God, what is? what else can we smell? But I mean, this smells very much of vanilla. So baby spice is very much coming through. But yeah, that was all the different ingredients that went into this body spray. I mean, that and a few others, Impulse Zen as well, was quite very sort of fresh and can't think of what it was, but sort of watermelony as well. And that had an advertising campaign that used the song Female of the Species by Space. So it was oh, felt slightly yes. older and yeah. cooler. And I remember seeing that and thinking, oh, I really, I need to, you know, I'm, I'm bursting into tweendom, although that wasn't a word then. I'm bursting into adolescence. I need this. And then my sister got some. So I used to spray it when she wasn't around. Sorry, Elizabeth. I was just really jealous of that scent. It was so, oh. I'm sure if I spelled it now, it wouldn't be as good as I remember, but I can still remember exactly what all of the different impulses smelled like because they were just, they were so important at that point in my life. God, I'm such a consumerist. This is terrible. Well, one thing that really did strike me think about it now is we should say what was happening in that advert was it was kind of subversion, again, very much in line with the Spice Girls kind of, I suppose you could say equality politics, but it was sending up the old impulse adverts, which they felt a little more innocent at the time, but the tagline was, when a man you've never met before suddenly gives you flowers, that's impulse. It was, you know, <laughs> yeah. a man racing up to a woman with a bunch of flowers. And in this, it's that men come a cropper because they're staring at the Spice Girls too much, trip over their market stalls and fall off scaffolding. Yeah, like I that. think the impulse Zen one had like a man falling down a manhole or something. But the idea was that there was this girl and she was... But the space, I was quite into space even during my very cheesy pop years and so space linked with impulse then was a powerful advertising message to send to me but what's interesting is that whereas you know women's fragrance adverts have got a bit more on the side of women i would say over 
over the years yeah. than they were. Men's gone the other way around because what I would associate them with from around that time would be, you know, the outfits where you get like a new man getting up and showering and you'd have the sure tick on him or, you know, there was yeah. you Insignia and it's all over now to the tune of the Rolling Stones, it's all over now. And all the Lynx Africa and stuff and so on came later. And it's as though things have gone in opposite directions and it's not good. I mean, it depends. The perfume ads, all the cologne ads now are all sort of trying to be incomprehensible art pieces and are actually just pretty grim. Oh, the Johnny Depp one that for some reason is still showing is... I mean, it would be laughable if it wasn't so sad, but... Yeah, the Lynx Africa one, it always feels very much like a throwback to sort of early 2000s lad culture, really, which you'd think we've left behind in most ways, you know, certainly in the zeitgeist has passed, but they're still trying to go with it. Maybe they're just waiting for it to come back. The thing about the Spice Girls body spray, though, is that it came out in 1997, which, if I remember rightly, that was when the wheels started to come off. It never went disastrously wrong for them, but there was quite a long decline before they split up. This stuff obviously was on the shelves, so I'm assuming it sold well before they had to withdraw the Jimmy. I assume so. I would smell say, from it. I would say the body spray represents the peak of the Spice Girls' success <laughs> because <laughs> it was really bought around the same time as probably 50% of the stuff I was buying with my pocket money was Spice Girls branded. And I think the wheels did start to come off slightly when you've got that Viva Forever video coming out and then Jerry stops showing up on things and it all goes a bit wrong and then she's left and I mean I was very I don't remember being upset about it at all I think I was very sanguine about it. I didn't really care I think I was slightly over it by then I didn't think Viva Forever was as good as the other songs although as an adult I really love it as a child I think they were trying to be a bit more grown up and I wasn't ready for them to be a bit more grown up so I wish they'd just take their brats fairies CGI video and piss off <laughs> didn't like it I wanted them to be doing spice up your life again forever and ever but I mean as a grown up now I really appreciate Viva Forever and some of their later stuff is really good yeah I think 98 the wheels somebody who with much more knowledge can correct me on social media 98 is when Jerry left I think and after that they were never going to be as good again that was it magic was gone but I saw them in concert Coventry in 2019 and they were incredible so you know the magic is still there to some extent well you've made it a bit difficult for me to do what I thought was a very neat link into your next choice because oh sorry edit everything I said out <laughs> well you know you were implying it was the end of an era but then you said well no because they're still brilliant to sort of recently which would have been a good way for me to say your next choice involves another end of an era so I'm just gonna go with that and see what happens you're listening to Radio the years we've enjoyed a long and mango-tastically fruitful relationship with Radio Fab. However, over recent months we've found that we cannot any longer agree with the current backstab trocious policies being conducted by the new gaffer of the station, Mr. John Burke. We certainly can't. We therefore emphatically announce that heretofore from this date, the 22nd of Nov, 1993, we do most humbly resign from the aforementioned station, Radio Fab FM. What is the nature of your disagreement with the manager? You've heard our statement. We have nothing more to add at this stage. Except that uh, I'd just like to add at this stage that I'm absolutely flabbergasted at being resigned. OK, Mike Smash and Dave Nice there. 
being resigned from Radio Fab FM. I know what this is from and I love it. Lydia, what is it? This is Smashy and Nicey, End of an Era with Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse, which was a one-off special featuring the character Smashy and Nicey from, I think, the Harry Enfield television programme. I can't remember exactly what it was called. And this is another thing that me and my sister were obsessed with probably around the same time a bit older. I remember we came home back in the day when there was, you know, four or five channels and nothing else. We came home from dinner out with family friends or something and we put the television on and this had just started and we had no idea what it was. We knew who Harry Enfield was because we quite liked various things that he had done. The Hula Hoops advert probably mainly at that point. But we were... I don't know, 12, 13. I had absolutely no idea who these characters were, who they were supposed to be taking off, what was going on, anything to do with real events. But we thought this was the funniest thing we'd ever seen. And I still hold by it today. I have followed people on Twitter simply because they have quoted this in reply. And I thought, oh, you speak my language. This is something I, you know, you're a good person to be following. It is one of the funniest hours of television and as I've got older and I've realised who they're taking off and what kind you know what the cultural conversation was around the people that they were satirising I think that's only made it funnier. Yeah, I should really sort of fill in some of the blanks here for people who may not have any idea what we're talking about. But basically, Smashy and Nicey were characters who Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse invented. I'll come back to where they started from in a bit. But they were sending up Radio 1 in the late 80s into the early 90s had a lot of DJs that... I'll be careful how I say this because some of them have since been disgraced, but some of them haven't. And they had, you know, when I was listening to them, I was thinking, oh, you boring old man, stop playing Super Tramp, you know, instead of whatever's in the charts. But in their day, they had been great broadcasters. It's just they were still there and they were saying they were pushing 40 sounds ridiculous now because, you know, there are probably DJs on Radio 1 who are pushing 40 who are capable of saying to the station's brief, but they were still there. They were annoying people more than anything else, but they were the big stars. They ruled the roost somehow. And Smashy and Nicey were a deliberate send-up of all of them at once. You can't point to a single DJ and say either character was based on them because they got characteristics of so many. Yeah, I'm still as someone who was not listening to Radio 1 in the late 80s and early 90s because I was too busy being a very young child I had not heard of most of the people that they were taking off when this started and have only dimly become aware I mean there's people like Noel Edmonds and Tony Blackburn and there's elements I think of different in this end of an era there are elements of the different specific DJs which are mentioned there is a lot of a guy who's been completely forgotten now Adrian Just who was kind of a sort of the comedy technical whiz kid on Radio 1 where any funny sound or funny voice that he could incorporate he would that's a name that's fallen off the radar since we're sending him up. Yeah, I've never heard. I don't know who that is. But, I, you know, I know, I knew who Noel Edmonds was and I knew who Tony Blackman was. And so I was... I mean, they, you said they were pushing 40. They seemed older even then. I mean, yes. I'm pushing 40 now. And I don't... I am too old to be DJing on Radio 1 in terms of the music I listen to and my interests. But there are still... I mean, Greg James is still on Radio 1, isn't he? And I was at uni with him, so he was the same age as me or slightly older and I don't think of him as 
in that category but in terms of the style and the zeitgeist they definitely seemed like sort of crusty old men even then even now you know i look at 40 year olds from the 80s and they look like completely different human beings to 40 year olds that i know now i still think we're all very young maybe that's just how it is maybe every 40 year old thinks they're really young and they're not also specifically in response to i mean i say all that was going on on radio one matthew bannister took over as controller i think in 1993 with a brief to modernize the station and there's a bit of a historically it's I don't know, people sort of, the revisionists have won. It's become painted as it was a disaster. There's someone who was Radio 1's target audience at the time. It was not. And also, he didn't just fire all the old DJs and bring in a load of new people. He kept some of them on, like Steve Wright, for example. And the other people that were given more prominence were already on there, just in less prominent slots. All he did was move stuff around and say, maybe she think about playing this pulp band who've done some good singles. And Which you know, thing? Radio 1 were really behind the Spice Girls and people like that, so they didn't give up on pop. It was just they moved with the times a bit. And I say the equivalents of Piers Morgan and, well, Jeremy Vine in those days didn't like it, but they were actually at the time saying, I don't like this. I mean, they're usually wrong about everything, aren't they? But it's terrifying to realise that they're still trotting on that same line now. But yeah, that's why they rushed to beat the announcement that they're being dismissed at the start of it. There's so many good bits, but the bit where Paul Whitehouse is trying to sort of reinvent himself following this and has decided to write some songs and writes a song that he thinks is punk about how he's on the ruddy rotten doll is still one of the greatest things I can probably recite 90% of the show to you but that specific bit I think because he's so believable as this sort of blank sad but still ruthlessly you know look on the bright side character who is living a life in total denial of his own reality and abilities and also of the relationship that he's got with basically everyone around him but especially nicey played by harry enfield (laughs) harry enfield's character hates him and he just doesn't seem to realize that and it's just they're both so unhappy in their own ways it makes for such good comedy because they're clashing against each other all the time and they're tied together and nicey's complete public denial of his own relationship with the young man who keeps appearing in shot and being sort of dismissed is so there's so much pathos in it it's beautiful i would honestly that's on youtube as well if anyone hasn't seen it i would really recommend seeking it out because it is funny but it is also quite it's quite emotional in places it's quite devastating the bit where smashy is recollecting when his wife left him and he played the same track over and over again which i think is based on something that really happened yes it was Tony Blackburn and apparently after it had gone out they did both think we've gone a bit far with that yeah but he actually took it in really good humor I'm sure it didn't sit easily with him but he was very generous about it in public, and a lot of the others that were parodied in it were not generous about it and some of them have since had a very big downfall so yeah I remember my mum telling me oh that's based on something that really happened and thinking oh that doesn't seem very kind but I'm glad he took it because I didn't think it was particularly mean-spirited but you know if... yeah it was just a long list of everything in it is based on something that a DJ had done yeah like the Dave Nice video show and the Deptford Draylons advert 
and Radio Geraldine, which I love. Yes. <laughs> There's a really great article on the television blog Dirty Feed, which breaks down everything. Well, a lot of things I wasn't aware of that are featured in this show. And it's, it's a really good read, even if you don't have any idea about, you know, who Adrian Just is or what actually happened in the run up to, you know, that this is taking off. Oh, it's, it makes it really interesting. What's interesting watching it again now, apart from something else that I'll come back to in a bit, is though that the use of archive clips that they're inserted into. Oh, yeah. There was a joke at the time about the clips that kept coming round, like Freddy and the Dreamers on Blue Peter and the first ever Doctor Who cliffhanger and so on. But when you think about you might have seen those in two or three programmes a year at that point. And you think of now how often, if you turn on BBC4 at any given night, you'll see that bloke in the top hat in Granny Takes a Trip looking at the military jackets in 1967 <laughs> or whatever. That kind of clip cliche has become more of a thing since then. And it's just fascinating they were poking fun at that even back then. Yeah, and the CGI for what it is as well, the CGI is really good. That bit where Harry Enfield is dancing with Freddie and the Dreamers and he comes in and he does it in time. And they've got the... Sh- I mean, somebody, again, who knows much more about CGI will probably come and tell me it's very bad but I always think they've got the shadows right you know they've got the lighting exactly right they've got the timings right if you looked at it and you didn't know what was going on you might think it was real even now and this you know this is a BBC comedy program from over 20 years ago so you know it's really impressive what they've done they all look fantastic and every archive clip feels right as well they haven't put them in anywhere that isn't believable that they would be so one of them Paul Whitehouse turns up in Dixon of Doc Green as a very, very unconvincing extra. Like you said, the Doctor Who clip as well and the Blue Peter, they turn up in that. And you just think it was this sort of rotating cast of characters. And, you know, they were still, they were around in the 60s and they were still around in the late 80s. So that's kind of why they had to go. It feels really believable. There's bits of it that feel really believable, even though these characters are entirely fictionalised. There's no resolution at the end. There's no happy ending for either of them. They're just, they're trapped in their own personalities and that is their punishment for refusing to move with the time. Well, it's worth saying that they weren't the only parody of those sorts of DJs that came up entirely independently at the same time. It's like the way you got Spinal Tap and Bad News both happened sort of sending up heavy metal Mm. on different continents at the same time. And it's just because that was what was in the air. But around the same time Smashing Nicey started, Victor Lewis-Smith was doing Steve Nage. And Chris Morris was doing Wayne Carr, both of them on Radio 1, actually. So they were poking fun at their station. But it was more or less the same joke. And those two had a bit of a Barney over who came up with the idea first. Harry Enfield and Paul Whitehouse just went ahead with it and just ignored all of that. And I think that pushed them to be more inventive with it, really. Yeah, if you've got to have the edge on your satirical competitors, I don't know as much about the other characters, but they've also got the budget. I mean, at one point, Harry Enfield arrives in a tiny village by helicopter and and, you know, they've got this shot of him running out of a helicopter to pick up a newspaper from a bewildered old lady and run out again and come back. I mean, you think that must have cost a... You wouldn't get that. I mean, <laughs> I very tangentially work for the BBC nowadays and nobody would be giving us the money to do that. It's a really effective look at a very... At a time I was just about too young to really understand what was going on, but it worked anyway. The layers of it have become increasingly appreciated by me as I get older. Well, it's surprising looking back how big Smashing Nicey got, how quick 
quickly because they were first seen in, I think it was very late in 1990, the first series of Harry Enfield's television programme, as you said, which people forget initially that was in an out-of-the-way slot on BBC Two. And I remember people coming into school saying, have you seen that Harry Enfield show? It's really, really good. But it was more the Palace of Righteous Justice that people were quoting from at first rather than <laughs> Smashing Nicey or Lee and Lance or anyone. But they just seemed to get bigger and bigger. I remember them turning up on a lot of things like... They were on an episode of Flip, which is a children's BBC comedy drama thing about a delivery service, had different people every week, and the week it was Trevor and Simon driving the delivery van, they phoned up and said, we've lost a, what's it called, it's sort of long in a cylindrical fashion, a tube. That's it, we've lost a tube, a Radio 5FM toothpaste. They advertised Fab Ice Lollies. I remember that. With a free stick and vanilla, which is quite literally vanilla. <laughs> they presented Channel 4's Late Licence, which is sort of the post-club slot around that time time. They did Radio Fab FM on Radio 1. They were around getting noticed more and more. There was the Let's Rock compilation album. You'll never guess what song was on that. Was it Buckman Turner? It was. They were on comic release Big Red Cassette. The comic release Big Red Cassette I very nearly chose for this because I listened to that over and over and over and over again. I think we must have found it in a charity shop or something. And they had the, the only reason I didn't choose it because I could the find the audio for it. Yeah, it's so <laughs> Just good. Someone I mean... falling down the stairs screaming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's fantastic. It's perfect comedy. It's so good. And it's, yeah, that comic relief tape's got, it's got French and Sons on it. It's got Lenny Henry on it. It's a really great compilation of what was going on in comedy at that time in sort of mainstream BBC comedy. It was fantastic. I listened to it on many, many car journeys. I wish I could. There's probably an audio feed of it ripped somewhere online, but I haven't been able to find it. So it's, I bet it's out there. But yeah, end of it. I think probably a lot of people have seen this and even more people will have been aware of the characters. But I thought it was worth including just because I do, I love it so much. It's a really rich text. Well, there's an extra element to it that's come in retrospect that we should just at least acknowledge, which is some of the people they sent up were not nice people. I mean, when you consider the ones that have been the least bothered are, there's a scene where towards the end he meets, is it Liz and Andy Serious? who say, oh, Dad likes you. And when you think, oh, yeah. you know, that Liz and Andy Kershaw are the least offenders, but, you know, compared to the actual villains of the piece, I don't know what I feel about this. Obviously, there's lots of references to, you know, Nicey's young friend of mine, and because they do some brilliant Top of the Pop send-ups in it. Like, you know, it says, whoa, who's driving this thing? It's exactly yeah. like the dreadful links they used to do, but he asks a girl, how old are you? Which, again, yeah. was something both Steve Nage and Wayne Carr did, interestingly. That has been cut out of more recent reports. I sort of understand why they do it, but I also sort of feel either show it as it was, because that was making a point about something that, you know, I'm not saying, you know, people say they all knew. I don't think we did all know, but we'd all heard the rumours. It was a comment on that. And to sort of push that away for modern, yeah, no, you know, I think to it's pretend really it didn't happen, I think either show it as it went out or don't show it at all. Yeah, I think it's a really important element of the characters in that, you know, even as a sort of 12-year-old girl or whatever, I understood even though I didn't understand you know sexual politics or how adult relationships were supposed to work I understood implicitly that like men are going to be creepy to women men are going to be creepy to women not all men and not to all women 
But and this was happening, and you see it on the TV, you know, especially in the 90s and the 80s, you know, well, especially in the 80s, when this was taken off. But even you know, in the 90s and the early 2000s, men being creepy to women was a joke, and it was funny. It was on TV all the time. It's a very important part of these people's characters, and I, you know, I don't think this inclusion in Smashing in Nice, I don't think it's excusing it. I don't think it's condoning it. I don't think it's really making any judgment on it at all. But this is an important part of what was going on with these DJs that were getting sort of shoved out the way was that they were quite creepy to women in a way that was becoming less and less acceptable. And to shine a light on it, I think, is a good way of saying, you know, you shouldn't feel sorry for these characters, really. They're not nice guys. You know, it's very easy to feel sorry for Smashy and to a lesser extent, Nicey. <laughs> But they're not nice people. And I think it's important to shine a light on, you know, it's worth taking the piss out of these people. It is right that they're going away, you know, or they're going to be less prominent than they were. Keep it in. I don't think it's, you know, if they were showing some of the more nefarious things that we now know are going on, then maybe cut that out. But, you know, that sort of slightly uncomfortable bit with nicely saying, how old are you? You know, we did all know. For most of us watching at home, there was literally nothing we could do about it. The culture was sweeping us along. I was very, you know, we were, we were told, we were, you know, we were shown it whether or not we thought it was acceptable and to pretend that it wasn't there. Like you said, I can see why they're doing it, but I don't necessarily think it's necessary to take it out altogether because it sort of makes it, it pretends that it wasn't happening. And it absolutely was. Of course it was. We all completely thought it was normal. Not acceptable, but normal. And just to recap, smashing nice at the end of an era is really, really funny. It's really funny. Even that bit is funny. Like because you know it can be funny to have uncomfortable truths pointed out to you that everybody you know there's so many things in life that even now you know even in this era of me too and people speaking out and lots of good things and positive things happening there's so many things that go on every day in life that everyone thinks is like is unacceptable but nobody talks about and maybe those things will have their moment in the future and I'm not going to bring them up on this podcast and start that conversation because you know I have a life that I want to keep living I don't want to get caught up in dis. I'm trying to actively remove myself from Twitter discourse at the moment. It's not doing me any good. So, you know, this kind of thing is still happening. And I think pointing truths out through jokes, you know, look at, I mean, sorry, this is a massive diversion, but look at Hannibal Buress and Bill Cosby, right? He's making a joke about it. And that's how we start this conversation. You know, I'm not saying Smashy and Nicey were doing the same thing, but it's the same kind of it's the same rules is you know you can point out uncomfortable truths by being funny about them and you don't always have to be dismissing them by making the joke and I, I don't think that show was doing it and I don't think generally it should I don't think it should be cut out well I'm going to take that as a moment to move on to a much more likable double act <laughs> so let's just hear a bit of them in action At the moment it's just multi-bags yeah and they're uneconomical because you know you pay for 20 tiny bags of Maltesers you pay more than for two big bags that have more Maltesers in them. Do you reckon? Surely that can't be the case. Yeah, you're making a sacrifice for the convenience of popping a, a, a lovely snack in your child's lunchbox. It is fun. It is fun for the child, isn't it? You know? But you're paying more. To have, the, the, to have bags that size is fun. Yeah. And uh, to me, that's a, those fun-sized things, as soon as I look at them even, I start having fun. fun. OK, very unmistakably Adam Butts and the Joe Cornish there on their XFM podcast. Lydia, for anyone who didn't hear it, what was it? I love these so much. These are the series of 20 podcasts released by Adam and Joe from their time on XFM, which is a London-based radio station. And I think these were released in the spring and summer of 2008. And six. And these were so, so, so important to me because they almost single handedly got me through quite a miserable year abroad studying in upstate New York in a city called Binghamton. 
which I didn't really make the most of. And I spent most of the time being cold and smoking and British and grumbling. (laughs) And part of what I did to get myself through was listen to these podcasts over and over again. They are an absolute joy. I have listened to them again this week. And there's more lad culture in there than I remember. Adam and Joe now have really both got separate careers that are very, very successful. Joe Cornish has done a lot of film directing and Attack the Block. And I think he's got a Netflix series out. He's done loads of incredible stuff. Adam Buxton is one of the most successful podcasters, I think, of all time. It's probably fair to say. And all of his conversations are, you know, empathetic and really wonderful. And he's interviewed some really unusual people. But this is them being silly for about 15 hours and there's almost no serious chat there at all it's just silliness and it's a wonderful listen i think the xfm shows and podcasts have been sort of forgotten about a bit because when people talk about adam and joe on the radio now they talk about six music mm-hmm. which obviously did leave a large footprint because you know obviously there was song wars there was taxation and retro taxation there's a whole stephen phenomenon which yep. I think has disappeared now, but I remember genuinely, I hope she won't mind me telling this story, but being at a massive Sonne Lumiere event in London with Emma Burnell of this parish, which got a bit boring, and so Emma shouted, Stephen, and somebody did reply, just coming. That's incredible. It was that big at that point. I couldn't believe that, yeah. I was doing my final year of uni when that was massive or possibly just graduated. So I wasn't really going to a lot of concerts or anything like that because I was working very hard and studying very hard. I remember they came on and they said someone had done a Fleet Foxes gig and I was like, oh my God, there's people listening to this. None of my friends listened to Adam and Joe, apart from the one friend, Katie, who got me into it. And so I didn't have anyone to talk to. I wasn't really involved in forum culture. There wasn't really Twitter at that point. I didn't know anyone that was listening to it apart from me. And so when I heard that like someone did it at a Fleet Foxes gig London I was like oh my god there's a community of people that are enjoying this like me other than the few people who are texting in I need to go and find these people there's people out there for me I was amazed at how successful it had been because I sort of I assumed that I was not the only one listening but it was my own little world that I disappeared into and I still go back I still go back to the XFM podcast and the BBC music podcast quite a lot well I think one reason the XFM podcast should be recognized more is that although they weren't really podcasts in traditional sense because am I right in thinking it's largely content the radio shows are sort of topped and tail with a couple of new bits. Yes, yeah. But when you think of not just of Adam Buxton's legacy as a podcaster, because there are a few things that make me laugh more. I don't ever really be able to quote it now, but you know that jingle he has where it says the conversation's flowing like between a geezer and his mate. He goes like, hello, mate. Hello, geezer. I'm happy to see you. Every time I just fall about with it. But they inspired a lot of other people. I mean, one of the, because my really big podcast around them was Collings and Heron. And yeah. I always say they were good from the off, but they didn't quite know what to do with it for the first couple of shows. And then a couple of things fell into place. One of which was they confected a rivalry, a one-sided rivalry with Adam and Joe, which just drove them to... Yeah, they did a Song Wars. I remember Collins and Heron did their own Song Wars. They did, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Because I always thought Collins and Heron were, they were just a bit grown up for me. I was 21. I was graduating against my will. I wanted to stay at university forever. And Adam and Joe were just silly. And every week was a delight. Sort of Song Wars just gets better and better and better and better. All those songs are on Apple Music. They're on my playlists. I know them all by heart. They're pro- I've brought them into my proper music genre. I'd have to sort of skip them when grown-ups are in the car because you can't, <laughs> you can't drive down the motorway listening to Dr. Sexy with, you know... <laughs> 
your boss or your mum in the car. It's God, yeah, Iakamu. And also Joe's, that week was really, I'm getting very specific now. That week, that I'm a Celebrity week was a very good week for Song Wars. That song that Joe Cornish did, which is taking off Kim Wilde's Cambodia. Oh no, that's not even that one. Adam's I'm a Celebrity song is good. The Cambodia song is the Australia, taking off Baz Luhrmann's Australia, the film, is fantastic. It's a really genuinely just great song. Their 80s songs are both very good. Their Bond, I think their Bond songs, their James Bond Quantum Solace songs, slightly broke through into the mainstream. Collins and Herod did keep singing Quantum of Solace and yeah. saying, do we have to go with Adam and Joe money now? They were really good. And then I think as they got slightly bigger and the podcasts were getting more successful and they were getting more well-known. And so things started because, again, this was before things were really going viral with Twitter. There wasn't really... If there was Twitter, it was only just. And so then they had Taffin where they took this uh, clip of Pierce Brosnan in a movie that I don't think anyone had really... I certainly hadn't heard of where he plays. I think he's played some sort of environmental activist or there's something to do with cutting down trees and he's arguing with his girlfriend and it culminates in him screaming, maybe you shouldn't be living here. And people were remixing it into things from, I remember there was a DJ on One Extra that mixed that quote from the Adam and Joe show into his sort of late night DJ mix. And it fit really well. And it was just, you start thinking, oh my God, this secret world of mine with the these two men that I've absolutely formed a parasocial relationship with is leaking out into the world. And it was the same time as people were starting to use social media more and YouTube was coming up and they started getting properly successful. But these XFM podcasts, I mean, if anybody else is still listening and a fan, please let me know because they're absolutely glorious. They do a section which is a takedown of R. Kelly's Trapped in the Closet, which is one of the funniest things ever. (laughs) Joe has brought it back from America because you couldn't get it over here yet. Plays it for Adam and it just picks out the most ludicrous bits. I mean, obviously R. Kelly as well. As with the Radio 1 DJs, R. Kelly has had his downfall. But but this was before that when we all just thought, again, standard creepy dude. It really highlights the absolute madness of what that Trapped in the Closet saga was. And it's, it's great. I mean, they are still, there's quite a lot of talk about sort of tits and not, I mean, not, I don't know. They always sound like they're sort of vaguely uncomfortable with it, which I think is the least they can do. <laughs> but, you know, they're sort of, they're not lads, but they are still young men. And looking back on it now, none of that used to stand out to me. And listening through to it before I recorded this this week, it really did. And I thought, oh, you know, what are you doing? You're better than that. You don't need to bring this up. Well, I think comedy as a whole was a bit, I want to stop short to say nastier and more unpleasant, you know, in the early 2000s. But totally agree. There was a kind of drive where even the most sort of innocent people felt they had to not sort of, you know, go to extremes with a purpose, like say, for example, Stuart Lee would have been doing at that point, you know, where you are driving towards something by being tasteless. Yeah. Well, you know, just tastelessness just as a blunt instrument in itself. So I'm not that surprised that they got swept along with that too. XFM itself, I think it's quite interesting because at that point, it wasn't what it became. They had interesting music and interesting presenters. I think the podcast might have been the first time I ever heard of XFM. I was in my dorm room in Binghamton, New York, and someone, my main other friend there, Katie, who was there with her boyfriend, showed me the Bobby De Niro video from the Adam and Joe show. And again, it was one of those things where I was like, I immediately love these men. I think actually that my sister and I had watched 100 Greatest Magic Tricks, a programme that they presented on Channel 4 years back. 
And we really enjoyed that. So I already thought, oh, these are funny people. But I didn't really follow their career until I got sent these podcasts. Then I was just hooked. And I'm still, I am still a massive Adam and Joe fan. And I think, you know, it is kind of a shame that they've done. Well, they do still do things together. I mean, Joe's on Adam's podcast a lot. I was listening to the episode this week where Adam talks about his mum dying and the relationship that they've got is still, it's really, you know, obviously a very deep friendship. And it's quite a sweet friendship I think that they've got I think on the XFM show a little bit and on the BBC one a bit more that you can feel the tension between them sometimes you know Adam's got these sort of insecurities and Joe's a bit cocky and you you can sort of feel there's a slight struggle sometimes but it seems to have really you can really see the progression of their friendship over these podcasts and you know that's great it's a really sort of nice thing to be a fan of it feels like a very wholesome fandom Well, I always love how they are completely unique. They arrived at their comic style almost by accident, by themselves in their bedrooms. I've always said this. You know, you get people talk about something very pretentious or portentous and say, oh, it's like they saw my life and put it on screen. The only time I've ever felt like that was about the Adam and Joe show when it was first on. Because this is something people forget. It only ended up on Channel 4, the first series, when it did, because Brass Eye was pulled. Genuinely, that felt like... Because I remember actually doing things with my friends. Like, we were always making those stupid films and so on and laughing at things in the late-night garage on the show. But it is such joyous silliness, you know, all the Titanic and Saving Private Ryan that they did with the teddy bears. It's all fantastic. And yeah, the XFM podcasts are a sort of continuation of that through audio that are, you know, they've got their own sort of proto, proto text the nations as well. They've got a really, you know, call in and we'll tell you an anecdote about our summer holiday <laughs> and call in and tell us who's doing this film commentary. But it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, so it's obvious. It's really worth listening. And the episodes are only 15 minutes long as well. They're all on YouTube, so you can get through it pretty quickly. (laughs) I will just throw in a quick hello as well to long-term listeners of this may know that a while back, Ben Baker chose God in the House, which was before Adam and Joe really knew what they were doing as, you know, a double actor. They've been on things like TakeOver TV and so on. Mm. Channel 4 got Adam to present this documentary about sort of alternative religions in America, which went out on Christmas Day. I think opposite the Christmas Top of the Pops or EastEnders or something and nobody saw it but we had a chat about that a couple of days later I got an email from Adam (gasps) I don't know who pointed him towards it but saying that he'd heard it and it meant a lot to him because he had such fondness for you know these little things he'd done early on when he wasn't a name at all but he felt like you know I've done something and the fact that anyone had remembered it really moved him so thank you Adam and I hope you're listening to this somebody will no doubt email you the link to it so if you're listening to this Adam I'm really sorry for everything I've said. I don't know. I feel, I feel like I've been fawning enough. Adam and Joe have got me. Th- have really got me through. I mean, they got me through that year in America because America. I landed in August 2006, about a week after there'd been a really serious international terror threat, which had grounded all the planes. It was my first time by my. I'd been at uni for two years already, but it was my first time by myself in a foreign country. And it sounds silly because I was in America, but I was in upstate New York on a campus that you couldn't get off you could walk for 45 minutes with no pavement onto a motorway you could call for a taxi that never arrived or there was a bus that would take you to walmart or the mall and that was it there didn't seem and maybe again i think i didn't make the most of it i felt so isolated because the only places i ever went were walmart or the mall or you know into binghamton's disappointing nightlife and i just felt there was a group of about 10 British people there and me and my other British friend Gareth showed some Americans Father Ted 
and it was the most excruciating thing because they couldn't understand why three priests were living together in a house. And we were very much trying to con- <laughs> try to say that's not the it doesn't matter why they're living together in the house. There's clues to why they're not living together in the house, but they're not in this specific scene. So we co- we're not going to explain it to you. And they just didn't. There's so much cultural, so many. I mean, obviously, Father Ted's Irish, so there's cultural touchstones that I definitely don't get because I have not grown up in that society. But it was just like showing them something in another language. And the fire alarm went off while we were showing them Father Ted, and I've never been so relieved because I was like, oh, thank God, we don't have to persist through 28 minutes of this trying to make them see that this is one of the best shows of all time and you know they thought we were aliens we felt like we were aliens if I could go back again I'd do it differently and try to integrate more but I just ended up talking to three British people all year (laughs) and feeling like I wanted to go home and Adam and Joe felt like home and these XFM podcasts specifically are what felt like home I would love if other people remembered them with as much fondness as I did because I still come back to them and it reminds me of smoking a cigarette outside in minus 15 weather and praying for it to be spring okay well although we were talking about xfm i'm still going to go ahead with this link and say we're staying hanging around late night on channel four <laughs> for your next choice which i don't know how to describe this so we'll do our best besonders in metallverarbeitenden betrieben gibt es häufig bereiche mit erhöhtem lärmpegel in derartigen bereichen sollte unbedingt ein entsprechender gehörschutz getragen werden <lacht> Okay, if you think that sounds a little bit grim and gruesome, that's because, in a way, it sort of is. So, Lydia, who was Forklift Driver Klaus and what was his first day on the job? Forklift Driver Klaus, or I think in German it's Stablerfahrer Klaus, is the subject of a nine-minute short film, which is a spoof safety video that I first saw at about 1am on Channel 4 in about 2005. Klaus is a young man. The first opening scene shows him receiving his forklift driver's certificate and he's very pleased and from then on things get worse for him. (laughs) He undertakes a series of inadvisable tasks and doesn't do them properly and people get injured in horrific ways, more horrific ways, which are clearly, it's all played for laughs. It is a satirical film, but it presents itself entirely seriously as a safety video at first. Unless there's some sort of German cultural context that I'm not aware of, you wouldn't know for the first two minutes of this film that anything is amiss. It looks like a safety video, but then people start getting impaled and cut in half and someone has an axe or something in their head. Yeah, somebody is credited as bisect Herbert in the cast list. <laughs> I don't know what this is. In that wonderful time before the internet was the internet, in 2005, the internet was a thing, but no Wikipedia, no YouTube, no nothing. I was in my first year of university and staying up very late as people who are on their own for the first time tend to do and a group of about three or four of us used to sit up and watch tv and one of the things that would come on very late at night was this group of short films they would play five or ten short films and this is the one that's always stuck with me i only remember a couple of others there was one called dirty baby does fire island I only remember the title and the fact that it was a Barbie doll doing some really gross, like, inappropriate stuff. I mean, we liked it, but we were, you know, I was drinking probably quite a lot of VK Blue and having a McDonald's and I was just happy to be. And I didn't know what Fire Island was. It was only a few years later that I had, you know, a significant amount of friends in the LGBTQ community who... One of them, I think, mentioned it in passing. And I was like, no, how? what is that? What's that? That's in my memory. What's that? And I Googled it. It came back into my 
recollection and I found the film, but I've never heard of anybody else, even the people I was watching it with. I wouldn't be surprised if they remembered Forklift Driver Klaus, but I would be surprised. And there was another one where a man kept driving through drive throughs ordering food in funny accents, which at the age of 18, we immediately tried to copy and were too chicken to, or we were too chicken to, because we're not comedians or filmmakers and we're not funny. Yeah, those are the only ones I remember, but we must have seen 50 or 60 of them. And we didn't have any context for this. We didn't know what it was. So as the injuries for Klaus's unfortunate colleagues get grosser and grosser, and every time that something happens, an alarm goes off, and it's a protracted alarm goes off every single time something happens happens and it just gets funnier and funnier and funnier and we could never find it it's on youtube it's like everything it's on youtube now but at the time we couldn't find it we watched channel four religiously to see if it would come on again it never came back it was one of those things where it sort of passed into our sort of collective memory and none of us were really sure what we'd seen but it sort of lodged in all of our psyches it just lodged in our psyches and we used to I just sort of bring it up all the time a sort of comedy character i can't remember whether the version we saw had subtitles the version on youtube has english subtitles if the version we watched didn't have subtitles we would have been even more lost it's very german in that it's a comedy about not following the rules well apparently it's a specific parody of the sort of legitimate videos on that subject that were around the germany in the 80s and it's narrated by i believe a german newsreader you know, very well-known uh, one, so, to give it that extra sort of satirical gravitas. But it's very hard to find out very much about it because there are plenty of pages out there that tell you how many awards it won and what it was a bit like and that horror fans like it and so on, but tell you very little about the story behind it. I like that, though. I don't want to know the history. It's got a Wikipedia page, which I was incredibly surprised about. I'm really pleased in a way because that keeps the mystery of it. You know, it came on in the middle of the night. We were all a bit tipsy. None of us were really sure what we'd seen, but we loved it. And then it was gone forever. And, you know, if I knew now that it was a project by so-and-so and it won this award and, it, you know, it was starred this man who was in a German soap opera, that diminishes it for me. I don't want to know. I didn't read the Wikipedia page apart from checking that it was a real thing, very briefly seeing what year it was made. For me, the mystery is really part of the appeal that there were these films. I can't even remember. The the section had a name, but it was just sort of an hour or so of these very short five, ten minute films, 2004 to 2005, where you'd just be shown a load of bizarre stuff fed into your eyeballs. And then it was gone forever and you didn't know what it was called. And there was no point looking it up because none of these things had any Internet footprint then. Whereas everything now is on everything now I think I've ever talked about on this podcast. It's probably on YouTube. YouTube in its entirety. That just didn't used to be the case. That slot was called Outside. And I ah. remember it was, one, it was kind of the last gasp of early Channel 4 because you used to get weird short films of Channel 4 in the middle of the day. Things like the Black Tower and so on. Oh my God, is that the one where the tower gets closer and closer? Or... Yes, that's the one, yeah. I watched that really recently and I loved it. Honestly, that's so... I think somebody just... Maybe it was you, actually, that just mentioned it on Twitter and I was like, oh, that sounds like my kind of thing. And I went to find it and I spent... like I went down a real rabbit hole with it. It's so... I was like Google Street Viewing all the locations and stuff to see what they look like now. That was so... So good. So you did get those in the middle of the day, though. But outside was, as you say, it was in the middle of the night and it was like a bunch of all these films together. You didn't know what you were going to get. There was that, I can't remember the name of it, but the short about, A, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who might enjoy it, B, I'm not going to make anyone feel sick who doesn't want to see it, about the woman who was determined to get the Indian restaurant before it closed. I'll say no more. There was Smart Alec, that really weird one. 
I think by Andrew Cotting, who went on to become quite a big director, it's about a family in the early 70s who break down on the motorway and they're waylaid by a gang of thugs that includes Sean Locke and Simon Munnery. That's oh, right. really oh, weird, that. that is. But yeah, you did get this really odd stuff in the middle of the night and this sounds weirder than most, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I can't remember. Maybe we saw some of those other ones, but I don't, the only ones I remember anything specific about are Dirty Baby Does Fire Island and this. Those are clearly the most affecting, or maybe I was just least drunk for them. It's only nine minutes, but it's stuck with me for nearly 20 years now, this this piece of absurdist German comedy. And it is very much, I mean, if you only watch the first two minutes, you will think it is just a safety instructions video. There's no clue that you can pick up on that this is supposed to be a joke. When the first person gets injured in a really funny way, it's a complete shock to the system. <laughs> I mean, I'm surprised in a way that nobody that's that big is in it because you would think that that would be sort of part of a career of a sort of successful German filmmaker or comedian or something. Someone would be in it who'd gone on to do something good because it's such a funny little film. Maybe it's good just sort of down there in German obscurity. Okay, well, I really, other than the fact that you did get very strange stuff in school's TV sometimes, which is weird, and anything you would see on Channel 4 overnight, I've got no way of getting into your next choice. So I know what this is, you know what this is. A lot of people listening will know what it is. So here's the theme music. North or South, East or West, the quest. To save the life of Pelamar goes far. Look bravely through the dragon's eye and fly. Okay. Unmistakably, Derek Griffiths there introducing the Look and Read serial Through the Dragon's Eye. Lydia, let's go through the Dragon's Eye. I am so surprised that nobody has talked to you about Through the Dragon's Eye yet because, I mean, I know your slogan is nobody else seems to remember it. A lot of people seem to remember this because it has lodged itself in our collective psyche. Everyone, I think, between the ages of about 35 and 45 seems to have been shown this at school. Through the Dragon's Eye is part of the Look and Read series series which is an educational series of television for schools when they used to make programs specifically to be shown in schools on the BBC back when you know they didn't mind spending money on those things I don't know roughly when it was made but I would guess around 1989 or 1990 follows three children who are learning to read and disappear through a mural that they have drawn on their school wall into a magic land called Pelamar, where they have to reassemble parts of a glowing orb called the Vitacor in order to save the land from being taken over by a frankly terrifying monster called Charn. They've got characters who are helping them, who are called Boris, Doris and Morris, and they are different colours. There is a dragon in it called Gorwin, who disappears at one point for some reason. It's got a talking mouse in it who has to go down a well for some reason. And I think a lot of people listening will know exactly what I'm talking about. So I don't need to maybe describe it in that much more detail. But it is a glorious series of programmes for schools, which 
I watched at least twice between the ages of about seven and nine. It was ostensibly to teach children to read, but it was a fantastic adventure story as well. Well, in common with pretty much all of Look and Read, it was school's TV that did not feel like school. It felt like proper television had somehow slipped through the doors, past the reception, past the secretary, past the teachers, and somehow climbed into that big TV with the shutters on it. It felt like a movie when I watched it the first time. It felt like I was really being given a treat. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there have been other Look and Read series talked on here before, like The Boy from Space and The King's Dragon, because they did have that effect on people. I mean, even, I remember being really excited if I was off school and you got to see an episode of one that you hadn't done in school. The one that always stayed with me was... I think it was a long time after it was made I would have seen this, but I saw an episode of Cloudburst, which is, anyone who knows me will know it's very me. It's about, it's sort of Cold War era thing about a scientist who's developed basically a device to control the weather and he aims to sort of end famine with it, but other people with very long coats have other ideas. I think not so much in Through the Dragon's Eye, but there's quite a lot of worthiness. The other main one that I remember we saw was Earthwarp, which was based around an alien called Ollie that had been sent to earth to teach us about recycling anyway the alien got very sick because we weren't recycling enough and some people were putting some oil in the sea and so they had to teach people to not put as much oil in the sea and the alien only ate fruit pastels but he didn't die in the end it was fine it was was very 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 heavy theming on the environment and i remember even earthwalk came later than through the dragon's eye but i remember watching it and thinking like yeah all right we get it we'll recycle don't kill the alien the aliens you know (laughs) please don't kill the alien through the dragon's eye was fantastic storytelling and you know it probably helped with reading as well but that's harder to remember quite famous people in it carolyn pickles is in it who was in harry potter later she's been in loads of stuff charles collingwood from the archers is the voice of the mouse so that was the first time i'd ever i'd heard of him in this years before i knew what the archers was he was the voice of the slightly officious mouse and i think some of the children have gone on to do sort of proper grown-up acting as well but i couldn't tell you what they were in yeah there's marlene gordon who's been in things like eastenders but she was also in a band called evoke in the 90s she was in us girls the bbc sitcom as well oh wow simon fenton who is one of those people that you know just turns up in things like well like eastenders occasionally but he was in quite a few the first thing i remember him being in was the late 80s bbc tom's midnight garden i think it was one of the teabag series on itv he was in century Falls, which is a very early Russell T. Davis serial. He's also in Matinee, the film what? with John Goodman. Yes. <laughs> I think, yeah, he went to America. I vaguely remember hearing years later that he'd sort of gone to America because I think he was sort of the child actor. You could kind of tell he had that look around him. His name was Scott. Scott, Amanda and Jenny. And Jenny was the one that couldn't read very well. And for some reason, she was the one that had to do most of the reading. And she was sort of left with the grown-up characters while the others went off on this adventure. The main antagonist, Skeleton Bird Man, with really long nails, which he was click together which was really horrible and he's trying to it was never really clear what he was trying to do but maybe there was, it feels like there was maybe an environmental theme there as well he's trying to take over so it was this real story of good versus evil but with reading comprehension sort of wedged in there as well you know they have to learn to read in order to save save the land of Pelamar. i remember we watched it and then i made my teacher buy the class the book 
there was a book which was advertised at the end of the programme and I made the teacher probably, sorry, out of her own pocket, sorry, Mrs King, buy the book for the class and then I insisted on having the book first to read (laughs) because I was really obsessed with it. And then when it was on, I think it was on again when I was at uni or something a few years later, I just noticed noticed it and I watched a few episodes again and it holds up, I think, it really holds up. It's a really good show. Sean frightened a lot of people. He's a scary character to show to seven-year-olds on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, Look At Me did have all those class workbooks, like you say, which go for quite a bit of money now. Because I assume there weren't many copies of them printed. But what I don't know, and I forgot to check this, is was Wordy still around by the time of Through the Dragon's Eye? Wordy was not in Through the Dragon's Eye because quite a lot of them... No, he wouldn't have fit in there. He would have been an outsider in Palomar. I don't really remember Wordy. I think Wordy was slightly before my time, maybe. But we had, there was the different episodes of Look and Read with Wordy and the wizard who would show you, like, magic, 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 e, and would show you, sorry, I'm... You can't see me and I'm doing all the finger stuff. So there were different episodes sort of with sort of the off season where they would just get wordy to teach you how to do words and they were never as good. No, he doesn't appear in it. It's completely self-contained. It's its own adventure story. And it, I think it, it was quite low budget. But when you were watching it as a seven year old, you don't notice, you know, when they're in the cave, it feels really there's a bit where they have to jump over what is probably quite a small cavern and they drop one of the pieces down in a ravine and the mouse is the only one that's big enough to go and well, small enough to go and get it he can shrink himself he's a big mouse but he can shrink himself down it really that that's the episode that stuck with me like that's it was really evocative and it really felt like they were trapped in this terrifying cave there was some real peril in there and also vowels and consonants and you know you can <laughs> You learn, you know, the perfect educational program because I was totally absorbed by it and obsessed with it. I, you know, I wanted our school to draw a mural on the wall just in case, just in case you could get into it. But I don't think we had a wall big enough and probably not the art supplies either. But it was a really charming show. I wouldn't be surprised if they're still showing it because there's nothing in there that you couldn't teach children with now. It, it still feels, I think, quite it's probably quite dated in its sort of CGI effects, but I don't think they were even particularly good in the early 90s. It was all done sort of on the fly. So it's there was a computer game as well. There was a computer game, which I think I don't think I ever played, but was probably high up on my wish list of things to get. Yeah, it was on the BBC Micro. What a surprise. Which, you know, late 80s, it's a bit late for the BBC Micro, isn't it? The BBC Micro was on its way out by then, but I think we still had some in our school. I remember one in the classroom... We had Acorn computers in our classrooms in the sort of 93, 94, whereas BBC Micros were in. We might have had one left. So, yeah, maybe the game wasn't successful for that reason. They refused to move with the times and go to Acorn. Through the Dragon's Eye for the Nintendo Wii. Come on. Like, I I would play that. I was on Nintendo Wii. What are we playing now? The Switch. I haven't kept up. Even as children, you know when something's being sold to you that's not been thought about and has not, you know, people haven't really put any effort into it. And I think some things for children you do get, maybe less so now, although I don't know, maybe on the children's end of YouTube, there is a lot of rubbish. You, you know, there's a real difference between good children's programming. This is why people like love Bluey now and Hey Dougie and all the things that I now have to watch with a two year old because they've been thought about and they've been written and they've been, you know, they've got proper talent in them instead of just, you know, sort of shoving some things at the children that's bright colours and hoping it sticks. You know, they've got, they they had really got a story and the story was really compelling and frightening, but in a 
in a good way well I think quite a lot of kids in my class were probably a bit too frightened of Chan but you know that makes you want to watch it more because you're so invested in the goodies winning which of course they do in the end and they get to go back out of the mural and then it's like no time's passed at all nobody's noticed that they've been gone it felt like a magical adventure that we were party to for you know half an hour a week and a lot of people again you know before the internet it felt like this was a sort of secret thing that I knew about and then it was one of those things when you get to uni and then you know you start looking for these things on the internet and you realize actually there's hundreds of thousands of us out there that really remember it with a lot of affection and also I didn't realize I think for years that it had been shown you know we weren't the first people ever to see through the dragon's eye it had been shown to year groups before us I think we would have watched it in 93 or 94 it came out in 1989 so it was already four years old by that point and there's probably a whole decade's worth of people who are probably mad at me for not remembering it properly because <laughs> I don't remember that much about it now but I mean I think the theme tune still really gets a lot of people a lot of people can still sing you the theme tune and tell you how scary Charn was and that those are the things that stick with people. Well having finally got a proper link right at the end of the show <laughs> moving into your last choice you could almost say that through the Dragon's Eye look and read in particular appeals to both the cognoscenti and the intelligentsia. Station announcer, station Okay, very nicely insistent high-pitched refrain there, which a lot of people will be thinking, how do I know that? So Lydia, explain to them how they do. Oh, you know this. This is the hamster dance. I mean, we've talked a lot, I think, about the early internet today and how it felt like a completely different kettle of fish from the internet now, and it is. This is the hamster dance gone pop. I can't, it's the Cuban boys, isn't it, who, I don't know. It is, and there is a Cuban boy who listens to this. Oh. Hello, Ricardo. Hi, Ricardo. I love your song. <laughs> I'm going to try and do it justice now. I love, unashamedly, ridiculous pop. I love novelty songs. Not all novelty songs, but I love a good novelty song. Like I said, Adam and Joe's Song Wars are on my playlist of songs I listen to, as is this. It came out, oh God, 98, 99, 2000 maybe, when the internet was just, the first things were sort of viral. So there was the hamster dance and the dancing baby that got on Ally McBeal. And those are the things that people sort of say when they're talking about very early virality. The hamster dance was a big one for me because I was 10 or 11 and I loved hamsters and it was music. It was catchy music. I didn't know actually for years that the song is from Robin Hood, the Disney version of Robin Hood. That was news to me because I didn't see that film as a child. But this is great because it, again, it's one of those things where the quotes, so it's the hamster dance on repeat. That one. But interspersed are all these very mysterious quotes which sound like they're taken from films. It's a little bit like Frontier Psychiatrist. You know where they've got these, I think mostly from John Waters films, they've got these quotes thrown in from old sort of 50s movies. And so they sound, it's got the sort of sci-fi, slightly sci-fi throwback quality. And to this day, I have no idea where any of those quotes are from. And I tried to Google it. I've tried to Google it dozens of times over the years. Ricardo, can you tell me where those are from? <laughs> 
<laughs> well, even the Wikipedia page is very vague. It's very about vague. It. This sample might be from whatever. Mm. I googled a couple of them because some of them I'm not entirely sure what they say. One of them is from a film I think called June Bride, which is a Betty Davis film from the 40s, which I've never heard of. But they've picked these really sort of funny esoteric quotes from old movies and stuck it in the hamster dance. And it all fits. That's, I mean, it sounds absolutely silly and it is, but it fits together really well. And so I think this song, this song came out, I feel, about the same time as sort of Mambo Number no. 5 and Eiffel 65. And there was just a sort of slightly silly edge to popular music at that point, which I really appreciated. And I really loved this. And I think I'm sure you're about to tell me that like John Peel loved this song too, which really yes. helped and me feel like it was to Joe Wiley played it a lot first as well. And I think her name's been sort of written out of the history of it, really. Not that there is that much of a history of it, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Sometimes people who aren't the legends don't get the credit for their role in things. It's like people want to pretend that the DJ who took up a radio head wasn't Gary Davis. <laughs> he's not cool enough but it was him it absolutely was Gary Davis oh my god and they acknowledge it themselves it's just their fans won't yeah well you know I can sort of get that but yeah Gary Davis has gone up on my estimation that's great but this yeah I mean I remember hearing years later that John Peel had championed this when this came out I was too young to know who John Peel was or know what the significance of that would have been but I think it's a really good song but it is it's very silly that appeals to me it's not trying to be you know it's not trying to be house music it's not trying to be or maybe it is and i'm really aware now that you've just said someone listens to this who made the song and i'm worried about saying something that maligns it i love it i but again i really love the fact in a way that i don't know where these quotes are from and 25 years later nobody seems to know where it's from they've just put together this piece of i mean it's nostalgia now but at the time it felt quite you know something from internet culture leaked into music which didn't happen that much then it happens more and more now you know you'll get songs based like you know you'll get things from memes finding their way into songs you know salt bay and language that starts on twitter will end up in a popular music song i don't listen to very much pop music anymore so i'm not the best person to ask but it's there's a lot more crossover now but it wasn't at the time so this felt like something that we'd all seen on the internet came back a year or so later after we'd all moved on but with this extra element of sort of cool film quotes that nobody could quite identify and it did feel like this the precursor to things like the avalanches which used very heavily used samples from old television and old movies to give that sort of element of coolness but it's mixed with this ludicrous hamster this hamster song which just goes over and over again and at the end it quotes or misquotes i think that famous quote from the children's radio presenter which says you know that ought to hold the little bastards or whatever and it deliberately i think doesn't use the original quote it gets somebody else to do it it's a nice little throwback to you know this is kind of for children but also there's an adult there's a grown-up element there's something to enjoy for grown-ups here oh it was very subversive because when i think back to like you say the early examples of of internet culture leaking into real culture. On the one hand, you got things that there was genuine talent and invention behind, like TV Go Home or The Family Examiner. But on the other hand, I'm not going to name examples because it's not fair <laughs> to people who might have long since moved on from that, but there was a bit of a gold rush where anyone who'd done a halfway funny animation would suddenly be commissioned to do something for television yes. or an advert. And their lack of, I'm going to say lack of experience, very specifically going to say that rather than lack of talent per se, would become very obvious very quickly. And I felt quite sorry 
for a lot of them, actually, because they weren't ready to make that leap. No, and, I, you know, you can strike... Lightning doesn't always strike twice. You can make one or two... I mean, it still happens to an extent, doesn't it? You see somebody do something incredible... And then they're given a series and you think, oh, no, oh dear. Now you have to do it properly. In between, you got this just sort of like KLF style, like taking aim at everything at once through silliness. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. It does remind me, actually, if there was a single in the early 90s called Summer's Magic by Mark Summers, which was, it's a brilliant track, but it's because everything sort of rave related was so geared towards America mm. that he did a rave record based around the Magic Roundabout theme with samples and things like Itmar and Hancock's Half Hour. That's brilliant. Instead, instead of people saying, woo, yeah, how's everybody feeling? It was Tommy Handley. And it really worked. And it, it was a hit, actually. That kind of subversion is the sort of thing I really like. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it mixes in elements of nostalgia as well. I think you can have, you know, you can be raving and remember a programme you were watching with your nan when you were six. Like, that's, that's just fun. That's just fun. You know, you could, I really love things that mix in the old with the new I mean you know we watched Gladiators this evening they've recreated it almost precisely and the comfort you know people love it and the comfort I think of seeing you know they've kept all the things that people love and that's why it's working so well I think they haven't put in new technology that's supposed to be better and I think keeping people love nostalgia that's why this podcast exists you know, that's why we're all here. I love nostalgia. I love remembering things that I'd forgotten about. And, you know, and even things that you don't remember, but sort of evoke a time that's passed. I think this hamster dance is that now for two reasons. The quotes from the old films, I think, evoke a sort of, you know, old Hollywood, slightly sci-fi but also quotes are quite silly themselves. One of them is corn, rich, luscious, nauseating corn. And I've got no idea where that's from. The nauseate really like gets you. So the quotes in themselves are quite funny. And there's one is like, don't be too happy. After some months of this, you'll be smacking your lips at the thought of salt beef. It's completely out of context. And it's really, they're all very bizarre and eccentric and like a Part of me is desperate to know what the context for this is and how they were discovered. And part of me just loves the fact that I don't know. And they've just found these really silly quotes and stuck them in a song. And it's more than the sum of its parts. Do you know what its greatest achievement was, though? I would be so proud if I was responsible for this. Was It was out around the same time that Cliff Richard did the Millennium Prayer. Right. Which, you know, he got really uppity about that being given bad reviews. And, you know, if you're going to do something that lazy, get over yourself. People yeah. are going to be negative about it. Grow up. And the only good thing that that generated was that Barry Cryer said he intended to sue Cliff Richard for stealing one song to the tune of another. <laughs> but in one of the interviews where he was ranting about it, he complained bitterly about what he called that hamster record. <laughs> And how, you know, it doesn't have art in it like I have. To have made how him that annoyed he. in the face of absolute humorless pomposity. I'm saying, well done. I'm saying that should have been number one for as long as Brian Adams. It should have knocked him off and stayed there half the year just to show yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, this is a genuinely better song than anything Brian Adams has put out. I love this song. It's a great song. It doesn't pop up much on compilation playlists or anything like that. And I think people do dismiss it. It doesn't pop up on anyone's face 
favourite Spotify list, then it reminds sh- Maybe I've just got like very bad taste in music, but I don't think I have. I think it's just slightly been forgotten because people wrote it off as just a novelty song, you know, in the same vein as Bob the Builder or something. But it's not. It's something. It's something else there. There's sort of different things that were sort of coming out around that time, which were playing with computers to make music in a new, different way. You know, that you see later with Daft Punk and with Air that were all coming out around that time. I that in a different vein, I think, and it just so happens to use this silly hamster music so people think it's silly but i think it's great well i actually think you know we've suggested a couple of people that might be listening during this i'm hoping cliff richard will be listening in which case i would like to play condescency versus intelligentia again because i'm sure he will love that what do you think definitely i hope cliff richard <laughs> well. well it may not be brilliant for him but lydia it's been brilliant thank you thank you so much Left Swipe Right by Tim Worthington. Collected thoughts from uncollected times and how I kept myself sane and didn't while the world swung off its hinges. Lost, love, lockdown, laughter, lying politicians and lots of watching Agent Carter a fist of fun. More details at timworthington.org. Hello and uh, who's this on the phone? Uh... Oh, it's Mr. Fall down the stairs, and uh, what's he up to? Oh. <laughs> oh, it sounds like he's fallen down the stairs again. I don't know. He's quite mad, isn't he?